0: Chapter 14 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche, translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 14. Let us now imagine the one great Cyclopean eye of Socrates fixed on tragedy, that eye in which the fine frenzy of artistic enthusiasm had never glowed. Let us think, how it was denied to this eye to gaze with pleasure into the Dionysian abysses, what could it not but see in the quote, sublime and greatly lauded end quote, tragic art, as Plato called it, something very absurd with causes that seem to be without effects and effects apparently without causes the whole moreover so motley and diversified that it could not be but repugnant to a thoughtful mind a dangerous incentive however to sensitive and irritable souls we know what was the sole kind of poetry which he comprehended the aesopian fable and he did this no doubt with that smiling complacence with which the good honest gelaire sings the praise of poetry in the fable of the bee and the hen, "In me thou seest its benefit, to him who hath but little wit, through parables to tell the truth." But then it seemed to Socrates that tragic art did not even "tell the truth," not to mention the fact that it addresses itself to him who "hath but little wit." End quote. consequently not to the philosopher a twofold reason why it should be avoided like plato he reckoned it among the seductive arts which only represent the agreeable and not the useful and hence he required of his discipline's abstinence and strict separation from such unphilosophical allurements with such excess That the youthful tragic poet plato first of all burned his poems to be able to become a scholar of socrates but where unconquerable native capacities bore up against the socratic maxims their power together with the momentum of his mighty character still suffice to force poetry itself into new and hitherto unknown channels an instance of this Is the aforesaid Plato. He who in the condemnation of tragedy and of art in general certainly did not fall short of the naive cynicism of his master, was nevertheless constrained by sheer artistic necessity to create a form of art which is inwardly related even to the then existing forms of art which he repudiated. Plato's main objection to the old art that it is the imitation of a phantom, and hence belongs to a sphere still lower than the empiric world, could not at all apply to the new art. And so we find Plato endeavouring to go beyond reality, and attempting to represent the idea which underlies this pseudo-reality. But Plato, the thinker, thereby arrived by a roundabout road just at the point where he had always been at home as poet and from which sophocles and all the old artists had solemnly protested against that objection if tragedy absorbed into itself all the earlier varieties of art the same could again be said in an unusual sense of platonic dialogue which engendered by a mixture of all the then existing forms and styles hovers midway between narrative lyric and drama between prose and poetry and has also thereby broken loose from the older strict law of unity of linguistic form a movement which was carried still farther by the cynic writers who in the most promiscuous style oscillating to and fro betwixt prose and metrical forms realized also the literary picture of the "Raving Socrates," whom they were wont to represent in life. Platonic dialogue was, as it were, the boat in which the shipwrecked ancient poetry saved herself together with all her children, crowded into a narrow space and timidly obsequious to the one steersman, Socrates, they now launched into a new world which never tired of looking at the fantastic spectacle of this procession. In very truth, Plato has given to all posterity the prototype of a new form of art, the prototype of the novel, which must be designated as the infinitely evolved Aesopian fable, in which poetry holds the same rank with reference to dialectic philosophy as this same philosophy held for many centuries with reference to theology namely the rank of ancilla this was the new position of poetry into which plato forced it under the pressure of the demon inspired socrates here philosophic thought overgrows art and compels it to cling close to the trunk of dialectics the Apollonian tendency has crystallized in the logical schematism, just as something analogous in the case of Euripides, and moreover a translation of the Dionysian into the naturalistic emotion, was forced upon our attention. Socrates, the dialectical hero in platonic drama, reminds us of the kindred nature of the Euripidean hero. Who has to defend his actions by arguments and counter arguments and thereby so often runs the risk of forfeiting our tragic pity for who could mistake the optimistic element in the essence of dialectics which celebrates a jubilee in every conclusion and can breathe only in cool clearness and consciousness the optimistic element which having once forced its way into tragedy must gradually overgrow its dionysian regions and necessarily impel it to self-destruction even to the death-leap into the bourgeois drama let us but realize the consequences of the socratic maxims virtue is knowledge man only sins from ignorance he who is virtuous is happy These three fundamental forms of optimism involve the death of tragedy. For the virtuous hero must now be a dialectician. There must now be a necessary, visible connection between virtue and knowledge, between belief and morality. The transcendental justice of the plot in Aeschylus is now degraded. To the superficial and audacious principle of poetic justice, with its usual deus ex machina. How does the chorus, and in general the entire Dionyso musical substratum of tragedy, now appear in the light of this new Socrato optimistic stage world? As something accidental as a readily dispensable reminiscence of the origin of tragedy while we have in fact seen that the chorus can be understood only as the cause of tragedy and of the tragic generally this perplexity with respect to the chorus first manifests itself in sophocles an important sign that the dionysian basis of tragedy already begins to disintegrate with him he no longer ventures to entrust to the chorus the main share of the effect, but limits its sphere to such an extent that it now appears almost coordinate with the actors, just as if it were elevated from the orchestra into the scene, whereby, of course, its character is completely destroyed. Notwithstanding that Aristotle countenances this very theory of the chorus, this alteration of the position of the chorus which sophocles at any rate recommended by his practice and according to tradition even by a treatise is the first step toward the annihilation of the chorus the phases of which follow one another with alarming rapidity in euripides agathon and the new comedy optimistic dialectics drives music out of tragedy with the scourge of its syllogisms. That is, it destroys the essence of tragedy, which can be explained only as a manifestation and illustration of Dionysian states, as the visible symbolization of music, as the dream world of Dionysian ecstasy. If, therefore we are to assume an anti-dionysian tendency operating even before socrates which received in him only an unprecedentedly grand expression we must not shrink from the question as to what a phenomenon like that of socrates indicates whom in view of the platonic dialogues we are certainly not entitled to regard as a purely disintegrating negative power And though there can be no doubt whatever that the most immediate effect of the Socratic impulse tended to the dissolution of Dionysian tragedy, yet a profound experience of Socrates' own life compels us to ask whether there is necessarily only an antipodal relation between Socratism and art, and whether the birth of an artistic Socrates is in general something contradictory in itself for that despotic logician had now and then the feeling of a gap or void a sentiment of semi-reproach as of a possibly neglected duty with respect to art there often came to him as he tells his friends in prison one and the same dream apparition which kept constantly repeating to him, quote, Socrates, practise music, End quote. up to his very last days, he solaces himself with the opinion that his philosophizing is the highest form of poetry, and finds it hard to believe that a deity will remind him of the quote, common popular music, End quote. finally, when in prison he consents to practice also this despised music in order thoroughly to unburden his conscience and in this frame of mind he composes a poem on apollo and turns a few Aesopian fables into verse it was something similar to the demonian warning voice which urged him to these practices it was because of his apollonian insight that Like a barbaric king, he did not understand the noble image of a god, and was in danger of sinning against a deity through ignorance. The prompting voice of the Socratic dream vision is the only sign of doubtfulness as to the limits of logical nature. Quote, Perhaps, thus he had to ask himself, What is not intelligible to me is not therefore unreasonable? Perhaps there is a realm of wisdom, from which the logician is banished. Perhaps art is even a necessary correlative of and supplement to science. End, quote. End of chapter fourteen. Recording by John Van Stan, Savannah, Georgia.